the fact of the matter is, Russia intervened in our election in 2016 with the specific intent to hurt Clinton and help Trump, one. Two, the Trump campaign knew they were trying to do that and welcomed the assistance. And that three, that assistance was provided, notwithstanding the stumbling around by members of the campaign and whether or not they were actually able to effectuate a close coordinated relationship in doing that. But the fact of the matter is that my belief in an election that was that close as we had in 2016, that the Russian assistance to Trump caused the result that occurred. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 11th, 2020. Peter Strzok served in the FBI from 1996 to 2018 and eventually became the deputy head of the counterintelligence division, where he supervised, among other things, the Russia investigation, both at the FBI and later under Robert Mueller. His new book is called Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Pete and I sat down for an extended conversation over Zoom, sponsored by the Georgetown Center for Security Studies, part of the Walsh School of Foreign Service. It's a wide-ranging conversation covering Pete's own history, covering why he still thinks the president is compromised by the Russians, taking questions from students and others in the live audience, and responding to criticisms of the way the Russia investigation was conducted. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 11th, Pete Strzok on Compromised. So I want to start and then uh, depart from the area which is unfortunately too associated with your name, which is the subject of text messages. And I want to clear the deck of this subject and then not come back to it the rest of the conversation, because it is a thing that a huge number of people know about you. And uh, it is a subject that is well discussed elsewhere or badly discussed ad nauseum elsewhere. And I don't want to spend too much time on it. I do want to ask you to address, there are 185 people watching this live. There will be a lot more later. A certain percentage of them will say, why should I listen to anything Pete Strzok has to say about anything? He sent a lot of text messages and some of them included, the one of them included the words insurance policy and one of them promised that we will stop it, meaning the election of Donald Trump and he's biased as the inspector general couldn't promise me he wasn't. Uh, and so why should I listen to anything he says? And so my question is, what do you have to say to the person who says that? Well, I think a couple of things. I mean, I understand that question. And the first thing I want to make clear is like, I deeply regret sending the text messages. I think it's quite clear that I had no idea uh, whatsoever that they'd been, that they would have been turned into the weapon that they were. And it's absolutely clear if I had to do it again, that's nothing that I would have done because I regret the way they've been used to harm first and foremost, my family, but also the FBI and the work that the good work that the FBI and others did. And so I have a lot of uh, regret um, for that. And I understand why that was done. But at the same time, I would point out too, that, you know, like every FBI agent and analyst and employee, we all have personal opinions. 
and the culture of the FBI is that that is left at the door. The culture of all public servants are that personal political opinions simply don't play a role in the job that we do. And this is something that's been borne out by countless investigations. There have been two inspector general investigations that have gone through every single text, every email, every conversation that I had, every document that I wrote, every person, scores of interviews, going back my entire career with people, all of which came back with exactly zero. There was never any evidence whatsoever that any of my personal beliefs played a role in any decisions that we made. That's not surprising. I mean, I know that of myself and I also know that of the FBI. So. Uh, to the extent that people are concerned, I understand that, but I'd ask you to take a look at the record, not only the record assessing me and my actions and the lack of any improper sort of uh, influence. And then also keep in mind, if you're still skeptical, when you look at 16, 2016 in particular, take a look at the record of what happened. We knew things at the time, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the things we knew about Trump at the time we were investigating members of his campaign had those become public, they would have been horribly damaging to him. And they never did, not for me, not for anybody else. On the other hand, the things that were going on with the investigation of Secretary Clinton's emails did become public, did in fact harm her candidacy. And certainly the reopening of the case in late October uh, did so as well. So when you look at the scope of this behavior, I can understand how people might have concerns, but then take that next step and take a look at all the work that's been done and all the evidence is there. And it's very clear that these things that me and everybody else, like every American, yeah, we've got opinions, but you set that at the door when you do your job. And that's the record that's out there. The book's title is a provocation. The book's title is compromised. When you open the book, it becomes clear that you are actually arguing that the president is compromised in the sense that people mean the word when they're talking about the Russians having something over the president. So my question is, in what sense are you arguing that the president of the United States is in fact compromised by the Russians? When I say that, what I mean is that there is, within the president's reasoning and his motivations, things that are hidden that the government of Russia holds over him that causes him, whether directly or indirectly, to do things that are in his interests and Russia's interests and not in America's national security interests. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. You know, I recruited people for 20 years for the FBI. There are a variety of ways that looks. On the one hand, it's what people think of when they think of a spy. You know, it's Robert Hansen, it's Alder James, it's any number of people that we've recruited in Moscow or Beijing. Those are people who know that they're working with a foreign power. They understand the tasking that they get. They're responding to that tasking. They're talking covertly. They're doing any number of things that you think of when you think of a spy. On the far end of the opposite end of the spectrum, there are people who are doing things or maybe helping out in little ways that they don't even know that they're dealing with, say, an FBI agent or somebody who is working for the SVR, for the MSS. So within that range, when you think of somebody who is engaged in an intelligence relationship with a foreign power, it can look a lot of different ways. I think Trump falls in the middle. And the reason I say that is because of primarily financial reasons and, and financial entanglements, but it's not limited to that. But when you look at the kind of interactions going back decades between Trump and his business interests and Russia, particularly things in Russia that aren't particularly savory, whether that's organized crime money, whether that's things in, in dealings that link into the government of Russia, there are hidden relationships there that just by nature of the fact that they are concealed, if they were to come out, they would hurt Trump. 
He knows that. The Russians know that. And to maintain that lie, that lie is the thing that gives Russia the leverage over Trump that they are exerting. And they're doing that in a way that is causing him to place his own interests over that of the United States. Okay, so that is an interesting theoretical argument. Put flesh on it. What are some examples of things that reflect Russian leverage over Trump? And how confident can we be of the point that you're making? Um, so there are several uh, things that I can talk about. You have to look in the broad scope of things. A lot of this is, of course, classified, and it's appropriately classified. And there are many reasons from uh, endangering sources to things that are potentially still under investigation or ongoing uh, topic of an investigation or that have been disproven for all those reasons that it would be inappropriate to talk about that. But the fact of the matter is, even setting aside all that material, if you go to the Mueller report and to the recent Senate Intel report, almost a thousand pages long, bipartisan in nature, time and time again, there are now things that are known to the public which point exactly to this. For example, on the campaign trail in 2016, President Trump at some campaign stop said that and assured the American public that he had absolutely no business dealings with Russia, that he was, his, his finances were clear, that there were no uh, interactions there that would be of any cause for concern and that simply they didn't exist. At the moment he's saying that, Michael Cohen and others are actively pursuing a deal for a Trump Tower in Moscow. So when Trump says that, Americans presumably take him at his word. Trump knows that he's lying when he says that. Vladimir Putin knows full well that it's not true, that in fact he is pursuing a deal in Moscow. We had some wind of it at the FBI, but the point is, as soon as Trump says that, he's placing his credibility on the line with the American people. Putin and Russia know that they can immediately shoot that down, that if they come out and say, no, you're pursuing, you've had, your, your men have had all these meetings and contact about this deal in Moscow, that's an utter lie. If they were to do that, that would cause them immense damage. And so to maintain that lie, they suddenly, instantaneously have leverage, which they can exert over him to do or not do, to speak or not speak in any number of ways that are favorable to Russia and not uh, advantageous to the United States. So let me tick through a few other examples of similar leverage. One is that it is now a matter of public record that the president sat in the Oval Office with the foreign minister of Russia and the uh, ambassador of Russia and boasted that he had fired that nut job, Jim Comey, and relieved a lot of pressure on himself vis-a-vis -vis Russia as a result. Uh, that story held for, I don't know, 72 hours or something. So it was a short-term bit of leverage, but that would be another example of what you're talking about, yeah? Absolutely. And I mean, it, look, you can go through and I, I need to be careful because I don't want to, when I say things that are in the public domain, I, what I'm not doing is either confirming or denying that the stuff I'm talking about is in fact the subject of what's going on or what I was aware of going on when I was in the FBI. But when you look at things like everything from his relationship with Turkey, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Kurds in Syria, you know, he is as Turkey's, uh, you know, buys um, Russian surface air missiles as the U.S. withdraws out of Syria, leaving an opening for others to come in and become players, whether that's Turkey, whether that's Russia. When you look at all the various activities of the licensing that's going on between activities in Azerbaijan or around the world, 
The question you need to ask is, when a president refuses not only to divest himself of his interests in these foreign financial um, matters, but also refuses to be transparent about them. We all think about that from a government ethics perspective. You know, you need to divest yourself so that you're not doing anything as a government official that's going to line your pocket. But from a counterintelligence perspective, there's an entirely different host of concerns there. It isn't you know, are you going to be making money because the Secret Service has to pay an inordinate amount to, for rooms at uh, any Trump property? The question is, do these financial realities that exist hide things that are known and are being participated in by any number of foreign governments that an intelligence service can use to leverage them? And again, it's one thing if you're a Washington Post reporter trying to dig into those hotel receipts, you can do a lot. But imagine if you're the Russians. Imagine if you can tap phone calls. Imagine if you can intercept emails. Imagine if you can uh, covertly infiltrate somewhere and place a microphone where you can collect uh, conversations that are going on in the background. Imagine if you can recruit people. Imagine if you can play, place assets into the orbit of Trump to get to this information that he is so desperately trying to hide. Obviously, they can do that. Obviously, they're very good at it. And so all that information that you're trying to hide in the hands of a foreign power is extraordinarily an extraordinarily powerful tool to use. All right, I'm going to ask you a question that is conceitedly unfair, and you know I'm going to ask you to project onto a lot of other people. But if we had here 20 senior FBI counterintelligence officials how many of them would disagree with the formulation you just gave? Few to none. I mean, look, I did this for 20 years, um, probably six, six administrations worth of both Democrats and Republicans, learned and came up and was tutored by those who came before me who did the same thing going back generation after generation after generation. It is fair to say that in my experience and the experience of those people who trained me, that we have never seen a president with the amount of counterintelligence vulnerability as that which exists in the White House today. And it's not close. I mean, it is exponentially different. You may, if you go back to early days of our republic, find presidents who had entanglements with the British or with the French. I can't speak to that because I'm not an expert. But I don't think there's anybody who has worked this area of counterintelligence or broadly of an intelligence. I mean, widen that body of people to officers in the CIA or, or elsewhere. There's nobody who is going to look at what Trump is and the facts around him. And particularly if you flip that and say, give me a foreign power that the U.S. is trying to target, that we wouldn't welcome that sort of person and those vulnerabilities and our ability to get inside that. What about the current leadership of the FBI? So if I took Chris Ray and put him on this screen and took Dave Bowditch, the deputy director, and put him on this screen and, you know, could magically compel them to answer truthfully and in a, can you know, in a fully open fashion and not dodge the question and say, is there any serious question in your mind that what Pete Strzok is saying, I know you fired the guy, I know you don't like him and wish he'd show up, shut up and go away. Is there any serious question in your mind that what he's saying about ongoing counterintelligence vulnerability in the White House is true? What would they say? Look, I don't think there's any objective intelligence professional that would disagree with anything that I said. I think for the Bureau's leadership, they're like every other leadership uh, within the U.S. government. There is intense, unrelenting pressure from Trump and his White House 
to bend the norms of objectivity and independence that have always been a hallmark of the American government. So I think they, I don't want to speak for them. I'm not them, but I, from what I've seen from the outside, they're very much in the same position as the secretaries of various departments, the leadership of other elements of the U.S. intelligence community of trying to maintain the ability to do their core mission, to maintain the ability to work independently in the face of a constantly vengeful president who is trying to extract decisions which benefit him. And so when you start, the problem is when you start entering into some sort of relationship where you're, where you're bargaining, the minute you start bargaining, you're ceding ground, you're giving up things, whether it's turning over things to Congress that have never been given up before, whether it's producing the type of witnesses at a low level that have never, ever, ever been done in the history of the FBI, because you're trying to protect a greater good. As you constantly fight this retrograde battle, at some point you look down and what's left to protect is nothing, that everything has been given up. And so I, I can't imagine the pressures that senior leadership of, of the FBI or anywhere else are under, but it, that, that environment is just highlights the, the, the damage that Trump is doing to our government right now. I want to talk about the mechanism of influence, because you've described this spectrum from, you know, a witting bought agent a la Bill Hayden in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, right? Who is actively Ben, you gave away the story. You nobody's gonna read those books anymore. You just gave it away. <laughs> yeah, right. Spoiler alert, Bill yeah, Hayden. Too late now. But yeah. um, <laughs> but um you know, so you got your Bill Haydens or uh or Richard Han uh, Robert Hansons on the one hand, you've got your totally useful idiot who is not actively working for anybody, but is just doing things that are convenient for a foreign intelligence service, maybe because of actual sincere commitment. On the other hand, there's no leverage, but there's just a series of, of coextensive uh, 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 interests that dovetail and therefore uh, the person is useful. You've situated Trump somewhere in the middle where there is leverage that is a source of possible coercion or of ongoing coercion, but you don't think there's a handler who's giving him instructions. So I'm interested in your sense of the mechanism by which the compromised figure acts in support of the adversary's interests rather than his own nation's interest in the absence of some guiding hand handler? That's an excellent question. And it's one that I don't have a satisfactory answer for. I mean, look, there are some things where it's clear that he knows if he does certain actions that that's going to provoke Putin or make him angry and that his sense will be not to do that. And that, in my mind, explains some of these questions about, you know, why hasn't he said anything about the bounties on the heads of American soldiers in Afghanistan? Why hasn't he spoken out about the attempted assassination of Navalny, a, a domestic political opponent of Putin? Why is he still refusing to say anything about Russia ramming uh, one of our military vehicles in Syria and injuring any number of, of servicemen? That does desire simply not to anger Putin explained some of it. But what I have a much more difficult time explaining is some of these odd one-off things that are very esoteric in nature. You know, early on, shortly after, about a year after Montenegro had joined NATO, 
he made a comment in the context of saying, I don't know why we should necessarily come to their defense under the mutual defense provisions of the NATO alliance, because they're, you know, they're a very aggressive people and I don't want to start World War III. Well, you know, and I've made this point elsewhere. There's no doubt, I think, in anybody's mind listening to this, that if you gave him a map and a crayon to Donald Trump, he couldn't find Montenegro on a map. So that and it is a, very small. It, it, to be fair, that's true. And in the middle. So it's, it's hard to kind of understand where to start. But so for things like that, there are curious areas where it doesn't seem clear that the nuanced, nuanced decisions which geopolitically benefit Russia and not the United States, which are, you know, frankly, outside the level of understanding that we've all come to know and expect from our president. There is a question there about where that's coming from. I don't think, you know, when he talks to Putin, does Putin give him broad strokes of what he wants or doesn't want? You know, I'm sure they talk about that. that's what leaders discuss when they when they have conversations with each other, the areas that they're each trying to advance for their for their own countries. But that kind of when I see minutia that don't aren't consistent with my belief of what his understanding of international affairs are it it makes me wonder and i don't have a good explanation for that and that's one of those things that you know clearly is what you investigate in a counterintelligence investigation what you seek to understand how and if there is a channel by which these sort of ideas are being put forward and then taken up by in this case the president Okay, so the skeptical listener to this would say Pete Strzok is creating a conspiracy theory where there, and of course that is the job of the counterintelligence agent, uh, to imagine the worst and then assess it. But there is a simpler Occam's razor explanation, which is, or a potentially simpler, which is Donald Trump is... A Putin loving, he's all you know. He has been really interested in Vladimir Putin since at least 2013, when he goes to Moscow for the Miss Universe pageant and is passionately interested in getting a meeting with Putin. He's like a middle school, you know, middle schooler trying to get a date. Has Putin called yet? So he he has a Putin thing. Uh, he also never backs down off of anything. And so the why does he refuse to criticize Russia is the same as why the answer to that is the same as why does he refuse to, you know, denounce the David Duke because people want him to. Right. So he's obstinate. He uh, in a kind of narcissistic way and he fears looking weak and he hates our allies um, and so I can explain a lot of the things that you're attributing to Compromat based on something, I'm not sure it's more innocent, but it's more characterological and less circumstantial. And so my question is, why is that not an adequate explanation? Why should we jump to compromised by the Russians rather than satisfy ourselves with, because he's an obstinate asshole. Because the totality of the evidence points to a different, more concerning conclusion. Look, so walk FBI's us through job, that. Walk us through this. Yeah, absolutely. Walk us through so, how you understand the totality. Right. So the, the first thing I'd say is the FBI's job is to investigate. We are not starting out by passing judgment. The beginning of things, you know, Jim Baker, the former general counsel of the FBI, said an investigation is a question. You don't go in there knowing what happened or why. 
there's something concerning that rises to a sufficient legal predication to open a case because it is concerning because it meets the threshold of potential harm or damage or, you know, to the national security of the United States. So every time we go in, we're looking at the entire range of options. It could be something absolutely inconsequential or legitimate to something that is horrible and nefarious. But one thing the FBI isn't, it's not the Federal Bureau of and it's nothing, don't worry about it. Our job is to investigate. And so what we were doing at the time, when we were looking and seeing these increasing repeated events that we couldn't explain, but not only that, on the intelligence side, seeing information that indicated time and time and time again, this repeated clandestine contact between elements of his campaign and the government of Russia, that the government of Russia was clearly involved and that it was hidden. So we knew from the first day, and it was always in our minds, and I hope still in the minds of people in the FBI today, Trump is the elected president and has the responsibility for carrying out U.S. foreign policy. He made no secret on the campaign trail that he wanted to change the relationship between the United States and Russia. Campaigned on it. That's obviously his mandate as the president of the United States. Just like Nixon went and opened up China. If he wants to come in and take a new tack with regard to the U.S.'s relationship with Russia, if he doesn't want to anger them because he thinks that will be a better route to reestablishing a better relationship, that's entirely legitimate. That isn't ever something that the FBI was investigating, seeking to investigate, or seeking to influence. Our focus was always on what are the Russians doing, and specifically, what are the Russian intelligence services doing? What are they trying to achieve? And why on earth is it when we're looking at them in the context of Russia's intelligence services and national interests, do we time and time again see all these members of the Trump campaign and later people who moved over into the administration engaging in these hidden relationships that are not part of any normal governmental, diplomatic, or executive type action? And that's the cause of concern. And that was the avenue by which the FBI approached it. And again, because we investigate something in the counterintelligence context, the vast majority of things we investigate, we close after disproving that there's a problem. We look at it, establish that something's legitimate or appropriate, or a lot of times that we just don't know, and it gets closed. So the goal is not, or you shouldn't see this as, we opened a case, therefore there was something bad, and that's con the conclusion. What you should take away is, we opened all these cases, which is concerning to begin with because there was such a broad background of concern. But as we went through and advanced them, we kept seeing more and more. And that's why you end up with a campaign finance chairman in jail, a deputy or a campaign manager, a deputy campaign manager in jail, a former national security advisor playing, pleading guilty to lying about his relationship with the Russians, a foreign policy advisor pleading guilty to lying to the FBI about his relationship with the Russians, a attorney general who is investigated for lying to the Senate and his confirmation hearings about his relationship with the Russians. These aren't empty concerns. These are things that are going on where people are deliberately obfuscating and hiding their relationship with Russia. So as an investigator, as a counterintelligence person, when you see all these tangible things just across the waterfront, all serious, all bad, all legitimate, that gives you a broader concern about the kind of totality of everything that's going on that I think is the basis for the, the, and that's the backdrop. That's the basis for kind of saying, okay, well, as we think about Trump, how we think about it is set against all of that background. So I don't, I, I want to give you a chance to focus in because I don't want to dive into then 
pivoting to talk about how you think about Trump in the context of that. Right. So let's talk about how you think about Trump in the context of that. So you guys ultimately open a counterintelligence investigation against the president at the time of Jim Comey's firing. It then gets folded into the Mueller investigation and you get deployed to the Mueller investigation for that purpose. And in your account, there is Mueller's uh, investigation is kind of crafted as a criminal investigation. There is in Mueller's account a description of how these in- counterintelligence leads were handled, which is that they were effectively kicked back to the FBI. And there, as far as we know, they disappeared. What do we know? And I'm going to get to the Senate Intelligence Committee report in a moment. But what do we know about what happened to these counterintelligence matters as opposed to the criminal matters once Mueller's shop was established and once this investigation was open against the president? Well, we don't know much, and that's good. We shouldn't know much. Those are the sorts of things that should be carried out in a classified environment outside of the public eye and being pursued uh, with the full weight of the FBI and the rest of the U.S. intelligence community. What I'm concerned about is when I hear Director Mueller in his testimony saying, well, you know, those leads were, we had people embedded and those leads were sent back to the FBI. So when I, when I went over, we opened the cases you mentioned on the president shortly after Director Comey was fired. And part of that investigation involved a counterintelligence component to understand what the nature of his relationship with the government of Russia from an intelligence and CI perspective. Setting up the special counsel team, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, Mueller was not going to do that for a variety of reasons. The special counsel regulations are focused very much on violations of law. They don't address or envision intelligence activity or counterintelligence activity. So that's outside from the jump. That's outside the scope of his authority. If you look at his appointment order, it is also, it looks expansive, but when you look at that from a legal definitional perspective, it's it's pretty limited. And, you know, to the extent of saying things like, you know, looking for links between the Russian government and members versus rink- yeah, let, let me, let's, Russia. Let, let's walk through that because, you know, there was a, it's been a while since I've looked at Mueller's mandate, but my re- recollection of it is it basically had a three part. It was a three part thing, right? It's crimes committed in Russian intervention in the campaign and any collusion or coordination on any, on the part of any person with that. Right. The second is obstruction of the investigation, which is inherently criminal. And the third is any other crimes that come up in the course of investigating this. So all three of those are, by their terms, kind of limited to criminal activity, not focused on counterintelligence vulnerabilities. Is that what you're referring to here? It is. And then let's go beyond that. So again, it's not so, so that's absolutely accurate. So the focus is on crime and criminal activity, but it's even within that context narrow. So if you're looking at context between the government of Russia, let's set an example, Oleg Deripaska, who's uh, an oligarch, very heavily involved in, you know, the uh, Rusal, the Russian aluminum enterprise. Is he a member of the Russian government? No, he's not. Is he an element of the way that Russia exercises state power now? 
Yes, he is clearly. I mean, what? So, so, so the sort of devolution of what the Russian government is in today's day and age is not simply that org chart where the Kremlin sits at the top and you have all the various ministries and components of the government exercising state power. You have oligarchs doing that. You have organized crime figures on the periphery doing that. You have members of the intelligence community that are floating in and out of the orbits between these various centers of power. So, if you say Russian government. Well, then you're not talking about Oleg Deripaska. You're not really talking about people who work with or around him, guys like Konstantin Klemnik or Viktor Boyarkin or all these people who have nebulous connections to what we think of as Russian state power. And so it's even more limited than that. And certainly as you start thinking about it, not from a criminal context, but a counterintelligence one, that's absolutely outside the scope of that appointment order. So yes, that's the, the short answer is that was you know very much the, the, the in, in all those ways that the, the work, the appointment order of Mueller would limit that effort. And then kind of the final of those three factors that I'd point out to about why he wouldn't uh, be expected or didn't think he would do that CI work is just he is a prosecutor by training. He's an attorney. You know, he was the director of the FBI. Look, he gets. Yeah, I, I got to say, I find. I'm not he understands counterintelligence. I find that explanation. I mean, I know Bob Mueller was a legendary prosecutor and all that, and he's a homicide prosecutor in the local district after you know after the Bush administration. He's the head of the criminal division. He also ran the FBI for twelve years, including the counterintelligence division. And if anybody could have been special counsel, with the possible exception of Jim Comey or Louis Free could have been expected, or Bill Webster could have been expected to understand the counterintelligence equities of this situation. Surely it was Robert Swan Muller. Oh, I agree. I completely agree with you. I think he understood that. I think his sense was that his mandate, both because of the regulations which bound him as special counsel, as well as by his appointment order, meant that he could not do that and was not going to do that. And so there was an understanding that, you know, talking and he do. I mean, we had discussions about this. I, I talked about it with him. I talked about it with the senior members of his team that there is this need to do the counterintelligence work. And certainly the, the response was and the agreement was, yeah, that's entirely within the FBI's bailiwick. That's entirely within the mission set. So the FBI people that are here kind of seconded to the special counsel's office. You know, we're going to work with the attorneys and prosecutors to build these criminal cases. But at the same time, particularly with an analytic core, we're going to look at these counterintelligence issues that are coming up and figure out what they look like. Now, the problem with that is the way the team was structured, we had groups of prosecutors and agents and analysts and you know, forensic accountants and all these number of people broken down by target. So you had a group, you know, Andrew Weissman uh, was, was the lead attorney with a bunch of agents, which I'm not going to name, focused on Paul Manafort and Rick Gates and all the people that came out from that. We had another prosecutor, Jeannie Ree again, with some other attorneys and agents who were looking at Michael Cohen and a lot of the Russia-related stuff. We had Brandon Van Grack, who was investigating Mike Flynn. But all the, the point is the structure of the team were agent, attorney, analyst teams focused on people and the violations of their law. So the superstructure was that. If you're going to build kind of a comprehensive intelligence picture to understand the totality of what's going on and what Russia is doing, that's not the best structure to do that. And so what I was struggling with up until the time I left the team, was sent back to the FBI, was how you effectively do that in the context of the way, first, that Mueller's office is structured, but two, how you make a cycle out of that. Because it's not when I hear, oh, we sent the leads to somebody, 
I'm glad that happened, but that's not an entirely satisfying answer because in my mind, what should happen is that team then should be coming back and saying, hey, thanks for this lead. But by the way, we think, I'm making this up, you know, John Smith, who was connected to the campaign, we really think we are seeing evidence of a concerted effort by the SVR to target him based on what you gave us. Can you ask people that you're interviewing in the context of these, you know, proffer agreements to ask about X, Y, and Z, or completely different than that, trying to understand it, going out to say a foreign liaison intelligence service and saying, what do you know about John Smith? And not just letting that sit in the FBI, but then bringing that back into the special counsel's work, because that's where all these cases were. There isn't some parallel investigation that I know of, there wasn't as at the time that I left, going on at the FBI. And when I hear, you know, former Deputy Director Andy McCabe saying, oh, my expectation was Mueller was going to do all that. Well, it was my expectation too. Not so much Mueller, but that the FBI people on the team were going to do it. So my huge worry when I hear Andy say that is that after I left, this problem, not problem, this question never gets sufficiently addressed and solved. And as a result, there's kind of, it, it dies on the vine. And I, am I certain of that? Absolutely not. Could there be great comprehensive CI work going on right now at the FBI? As I said, I hope there is. And if there is, I would expect not to hear about it because that would be appropriate. But I am very much worried that the reality is that there's a gap that it was something that people thought the other was doing, and that it's the kind of comprehensive look that just was never fully uh, examined. So as the person who I think coined the term, the counterintelligence gap, as you know, that's a point that I have uh, some sympathy with. I, though, want to suggest that there's a little bit more evidence for it than simply the evidence of absence or the abs the I agree with you that if it were being done and it were being done in a super competent way, we wouldn't know about it. But I want to offer a piece of evidence that it wasn't being done, or rather two. One is that Adam Schiff has written in a letter that in his oversight capacity, he is confident that it hasn't been done. Uh, And the second is that the Senate Intelligence Committee in their report says that they don't think it's been done. And so my question is, how confident are you that if if something like this were being done, the oversight committees would at least be aware of it? I would hope in ordinary times that the intelligence committees would at a minimum know that there was something being done. Look, I, you know, I was on the other side of the intelligence committees for 20 years. I understand the, uh, the frictions of oversight by the intel committees in the executive branch, specifically the FBI. I know full well the FBI and others' concerns that Congress is not always the most locked tight when it comes to um, protecting classified information and a certain- And yet, when you, guys opened, when you guys opened this investigation, what was the first thing you guys did? Oh, went up and briefed the Gang of Eight. So for those that don't know the Gang of Eight, that's the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, the Minority Leader, and the Ranking Member. So the top Democrat and Republican in both the House and Senate, as well as the top Democrat and Republican from both of the intel uh, committees of each chamber. And went up there, Deputy went up with uh, the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, and sat down and essentially said, hey, you know, (laughs) a few things. We opened a case on the President. We opened a case in the attorney general a little while back. 
And then the, the DAG stepped in and said, and we're appointing a special counsel and briefed them on some of the other cases that we had uh, opened and answered, sat there, answered each and every one of their questions, went through to the amount they wanted to talk about it, to the amount they had concerns, went through each of those cases, again, including a counterintelligence and obstruction case on the president of the United States, where Senator McConnell and Speaker Ryan and Congressman Nunez, and I forget, I think it was Senator Burr who had the Senate Intel Committee, all of them are in that room, listening, asking any single question they want, having it answered to their satisfaction. Not one of them objected. Not one of them said, you don't have enough to do that. So there was this you know, effort to sit there and A, legitimize what the FBI and DOJ were doing, but two, to expand that, not only notifying Congress, but to give them the chance to go on the record and express any sort of concern. And there just wasn't any at the time. So let me try to summarize everything we've discussed standing on one foot in a sentence. Massive, unprecedented counterintelligence vulnerabilities for a campaign and for a presidential administration and very low confidence that the counterintelligence equities uh, have actually been investigated to a satisfying degree. Is that a fair summary? I think that's fair. Certainly by, certainly by the executive branch. Look, I haven't read, I've, I've read some uh, of the Senate Intel report and I've read summaries of it. Uh, clearly they, I, you know, they're to be commended because I think as a bipartisan product that came out that every, you know, from Senator Rubio to Senator uh, Burr and others, all the Republicans signed off on, it is a, to their credit and that they were able to get that report out on a bipartisan basis. Uh, but again, when you're looking at a Senate investigation, they're, tools, their investigative tools, their ability to leverage the resources of the U.S. intelligence community are much, much less than somebody like the FBI or the, the USIC might be able to do. So I think it's fair to say that uh, the confidence that a very thorough, comprehensive look to understand what happened from a CI perspective, utilizing the entire weight and capabilities of the United States government, that, that the doubt that that occurred in my mind is significant. And yet to transition to the subject of the SSCI report, the degree to which the SSCI report validates some of your concerns seems to me to be substantial because in addition to the issues that you guys investigated, they describe to a much greater degree, by the way, than I expected to see, uh, prior financial and uh, physical dealings between Donald Trump himself and Russian entities in Moscow, business people, and apparently uh, women uh, who, you know, they, it was not the P-tape, but it was, I don't know, 15% of the P-tape, right? I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's stuff that, uh, you could really imagine being uh, leverage. In addition, it describes with a confidence that Mueller did not describe the relationship between Paul Manafort and Konstantin Kalimnik as an ongoing business relationship between the campaign manager and a Russian intelligence officer. The claims that this bipartisan report makes do not diminish your 
anxieties uh, on a counterintelligence front. Is that fair? Uh, the opposite. I mean, I think they heighten them. Again, keep in mind from, from the start, for all the naysayers out there, this is a report who all the Republican senators of the intelligence community signed and put their name to, adopting those conclusions, adopting, let's say this, adopting those facts. There were different opinions of what it meant at the end. You know, I think Marco Rubio said it clearly displayed there was no collusion or something that, you know, looking outside and say there are, you know, zebras falling from the clouds or something. But it it is nothing but concerning. It makes me worried. If you want to understand, if you're looking at Trump's financial exposure, and they clearly did a, a very detailed look at that, but that doesn't even scratch the surface of what might exist. I mean, I, you know, I was thinking when you take a look at, there's the Office of Government Ethics form that you have to fill out on your financial interests and in one of Trump's uh, entry in the office. This over, I think it's over 550 or so limited liability corporations, things where he had either a controlling interest or some sort of uh, direction or control over. If you're trying to understand whether somebody has financial exposure, whether they are laundering money, whether they're doing anything with their hidden financial entanglements, the prospect of understanding what the Trump financial empire looks like from a counterintelligence perspective and one of vulnerabilities is a staggeringly complicated endeavor. And I don't know that anybody, I mean, could the FBI or anybody do it? Yes, it would be a massive undertaking though. And there's no way, there's no way that would be quiet. And that's part of what also gives me concern about whether or not it's been done. Does the FBI have tools in its investigative arsenal where we can obtain data quietly, records quietly under seal? Of course we do. Is there any way on earth that we could have, anybody could have done that in a manner that would not have leaked out and that would not have immediately led to Trump and others around him screaming and litigating to prevent that from happening? I mean, look what's going on now with everything from his tax records to the Mazar's accounting records. I mean, across the board, he is fighting tooth and nail to prevent that from being produced. I have no doubt that would have occurred in the same way um, with any sort of executive branch investigation. The absence of any outcry, the absence of any sort of media reporting, to me, indicates that probably wasn't done. All right. I want to go to audience questions momentarily, but before I do, I, I want to just tick off a few of the specific cases uh, that resulted from this. One of the constant criticisms of the Russia investigation, including by some people who are in the audience, is that the individual cases were just not as interesting or impressive as you guys think. And so one person who clearly believes that is Bill Barr, who moved to dismiss the Flynn case. Uh, George Papadopoulos has been on a kind of victory tour, having... Uh, obtained his felony conviction. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a sort of sense uh, in a lot of conservative media that uh, what you guys actually racked up was a bunch of A, process crimes, i.e. obstructions of the investigation, B, unrelated felony activity, like I don't think anybody doubts the seriousness of the Paul Manafort allegations, but they're not about intervention in the, in the election, right? And then indictments of Russian actors for their activity, but that it actually doesn't amount to 
a whole lot, you know, it doesn't amount to a mosaic that tells the story that, or depicts the picture that you're describing here. And so uh, in the more extreme dismissals of this, you know, you have people who call it, including the president, the Russia collusion hoax. But in the less extreme uh, formulations, you have people who just say, okay, so they indicted a bunch of people and a bunch of people pled to, you know, lying. It's not a pretty picture, but it doesn't amount to what Pete Strzok says it amounts to or what, you know, Jim Comey thinks it amounts to, or for that matter, Ben Wittes thinks it amounts to. My question is, why are they wrong? Why shouldn't we understand this as, you know, some grifters did some grifting. Um, let's leave aside whether General Flynn was railroaded or whether he was uh, a grifter who was grifting. You guys got some scalps, but it doesn't amount to the big deal that you would write a book called Compromised about. In other words, the whole matter is a bit less than the sum of its parts. Your thoughts? I think that's upside down. I think you have to look at this and all those individual actions, specifically in the context of what happened, starting with Russia. And this is something that Director Mueller was very precise about, even though the Attorney General tried to hide the message. The fact of the matter is, Russia intervened in our election in 2016 with the specific intent to hurt Clinton and help Trump, one. Two, the Trump campaign knew they were trying to do that and welcomed the assistance. And that three, that assistance was provided, notwithstanding the stumbling around by members of the campaign and whether or not they were actually able to effectuate a close coordinated relationship in doing that. But the fact of the matter is that my belief in an election that was that close as we had in 2016, that the Russian assistance to Trump caused the result that occurred. And, you know, a thousand other things did too including, you know, I write about this, that, you know, my belief that, you know, the Bureau's actions with regard to Clinton also played a role in it. But when you've got an election that swings on 80,000 votes between Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania in the sum total, there is no doubt in my mind that the Russian efforts and aid played a deciding factor in what happened. And so from that as your perspective, which has to be the perspective of an attack that is unprecedented in our history. It's not just interference, it's active involvement. That then when you step back and you look at all these players who are interacting and saying, again, all of them hiding and having clandestine relationships with Russia, that takes on a much more significant counterintelligence concern in view of the context in which that was happening. So yeah, was George Papadopoulos just stumbling around, running his mouth to you know a Greek government employee who he also told about the offer of assistance and others and didn't really know what the hell and couldn't remember what he did or didn't tell the people? Absolutely, that's possible. But the fact of the matter is that he heard about the Russians having material that would be damaging to Clinton and Obama, and that the Russians had offered to assist the campaign in coordinating that release before anybody knew that the Russians had hacked into and stolen the emails that were there. So either he's clairvoyant or there actually was contact there and knowledge there. So if you go through person and you go from him to the actions of Manafort and you know Mike Flynn and Roger Stein, I mean, we just go down the list. The fact of the matter is, A, they've all pled guilty to felonies, or most of them, 
And B, all those felonies at the end of the day aren't just, oh, you know, you, you, you violated the crosswalk and you were jaywalking. They all come back to this link to the government of Russia and the behavior of the government of Russia in attacking our elections and helping to install the candidate that they favored. And so there's no way that I think anybody can look at this admittedly very complex tableau of information there and not conclude that this was one of the most stunning intelligence operations from the Russian perspective in the history of our bilateral relationship. It just is immense and it's concerning and it's still concerning. All right. We've got a lot of questions in the queue. Uh, I'm going to try to, over the next 30 minutes, get through as many of them as I can. And toward that end, uh, Pete, I'm going to ask you to keep answers uh, relatively brief. From Eric Woods, uh, who is a recent uh, Georgetown CSS alum, what words of wisdom do you have for those looking to do public service in such polarizing and partisan times? Do it. Dive in. We need good people now more than ever. I don't regret for a minute the time I spent in the Army and the time I spent in the FBI. It was the most rewarding work I could ever imagine. And I know my classmates who went into the military, who went into the Department of State, who went into the intelligence community, almost to a person would say the same thing. There is no higher calling, in my opinion. And now more than ever, uh, there's work to be done. And uh, what we face in bringing back uh, and, and repairing some of the damage that's been done over the past four years. We absolutely need good people, so apply. Um, whatever your area of interest, I love the FBI. I'd, put, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, recommend the FBI to anyone, but there are any number of opportunities and, and dive in and we need you. All right. I, gotta, I, gotta, I have not asked you about the president's attacks on you, but in the context of that answer, it seems like a pertinent question. Uh, the president has tweeted about you hundreds of times. You describe in the book personal security issues that are uh, serious enough that when the FBI arrested Cesar uh, Sayak, uh, who was the guy who sent pipe bombs to a bunch of people, you got a personal warning that you were on his radar screen uh, and you needed to check your packages very carefully you have been publicly fired and humiliated by the FBI brass. How can you not be a little bit more hesitant in your urging somebody to go into a career in public service? It's look, it, it has the opposite <laughs> impact. I don't know if that says what that says about me, but I think the goal is when you see something under attack that you love, when you see something under attack that is so critical to what makes our democracy what it is, you know, a professional government, a government that is free of nepotism or as free as it can be, the role that we as a people rely on our government to do from protecting us to providing for us. When you see that under attack, it makes me want to do nothing more than to marshal people to help the cause. So look, I mean, all those things are horrible. I, they're inexplicably horrible. I can't talk to you about just the, everything from the fear to the anger that this lies essentially being placed on you and your image and the constant onslaught. It's terrible. And it, you know, certainly at people at my level, when you look across the board at, you know, others, whether it's, you know, Colonel Alex Finman or Ambassador Yovanovitch or all these people in the government who have suddenly found themselves at the, you know, on the crosshairs of the president on their back treating and treating those folks in ways that no administration has done in the past. It's awful. And there's no easy way to 
try and explain how awful it is. Um, but still, despite that, what that makes me want to do is um, stand up more and encourage others to stand up more and to get involved. So, you know, that's that's the reason why I'm telling everyone who can go to the government to go go to public service. John Gentry asks, uh, no mention has been made of uh, the Steele dossier. There are accusations that there is evidence that Russian intelligence fed the anti-Trump Steele dossier. What is your response? Yeah, so, I mean, more broadly, uh, how does the Steele material fit into this story? And, and to what extent are you now concerned and were you then concerned that Russian disinformation was feeding that information? Yeah, look, so I mean, the steel uh, information is a great example of what the FBI gets on a daily basis from sources, um, you know, whether that's intelligence information on the national security side or whether it's something that, you know, a snitch uh, talking about some gang might provide about what's going on. Every time we get information in the FBI, particularly on the intel side, we know that there could be a bunch of things going on and a bunch of motivations there. We fully understand it could be disinformation. It could be flat out made up false material. It could be something that somebody's trying to give to us because they have an ulterior motive that it might partially be true, but they're also trying to get us to do things and shape or sculpt what we do or don't do because of that information. So all those concerns automatically attach to any intelligence that comes in. Steel material was no different. And when we received that material, it was immediate, it was self-apparent that it was coming from a variety of sources. We quickly were able to determine that Steel was using a primary subsource who in turn had a lot of sources, not exclusively to the subsource, but a lot of subsources behind it. And so we put a lot of effort into explaining and thinking and looking into all those questions I just noted. Again, that's not unusual, but one of the issues, and I'll, I'll try and keep this short, is when that became public, it seized the public imagination. And it became this kind of thing where people either, they were very quickly polarized and they either saw that as an absolutely truthful tale that represented a horrible, horrible, you know, just uh, recruitment and worse of the president, or they were convinced it was all complete nonsense, that there was no truth to it whatsoever. And so proving or disproving Steele almost became the test of whether or not there's any counterintelligence concern about Trump. And so as it became apparent, certainly with the steel material, you know, I still to this day believe what we initially found while I was working with it through early 17, and it was an analytic effort mostly, there was a little bit that we confirm, could confirm. There was a little bit that we could disprove, but there was a whole host of material, the bulk of the material that we simply didn't know whether it was accurate or not. And so as these reports came in that were casting doubt on it, some people try to flip that and say, well, see, look, this is all nonsense. And therefore, it's none of it is credible. And because one source somewhere from a foreign government says they heard this might be disinformation, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I would expect to see that. No, they didn't say it was, and they didn't say that we proved that it was in subsequent investigation. But when you have a tremendous number of partisan political actors who have very little training in intelligence or how the counterintelligence community works and vets information, with a bunch of horrible motives to skew and undermine the truth, the steel material really served as it began getting public to really detract from 
uh, what we were doing. And keep in mind, Steele had nothing to do with Mike Flynn. It had nothing to do with George Papadopoulos. It talked about Manafort a lot in the context of being a conduit between the campaign and Russia. But what it didn't do, we didn't use that in the prosecution of Manafort, the financial crimes and things like that that we were looking at Manafort. That didn't, that wasn't part of the Steele material. So when you look at what the Mueller effort did, what the special counsel's office did, the Steele material was was almost de minimis, but it took this outsized role in the public dialogue because the public knew about it. The reality of what we were looking at, I, mean, it, I don't want to call it a sideshow, but it was this very little small chunk of the entirety of the effort that we were looking at. But to the public, it was everything. And so if it was true, well, then God, it's horrible. And if it isn't true or we can't prove it, well, then clearly that demonstrates that there's no problem here. And that's just, that was the wrong way to set the dialogue. And, and it was problematic that way. And of course, it also got conflated intentionally with the advent of the investigation with which it in fact had nothing to do. Um, Jerry, right. Dun Jerry Dunleavy of the Washington Examiner writes, can Mr. Strzok clear up what seems to be a contradiction in his timeline of how the crossfire hurricane investigation began? He writes that the Australians were prompted to contact the U.S. about a May 2016 conversation with George Papadopoulos following Trump's Russia, if you're listening, comments in July of 2016. But Mueller and Horowitz say that I, Inspector General Horowitz, say the U.S. was contacted by the friendly foreign government on July 26, 2016, and Trump's comments were not until the next day, July 27th, 2016. Uh, any, any help for Mr. Dunleavy? Yeah, absolutely. So I got that wrong. So I was writing my book uh, without the benefit of the notes. Um, the FBI had those and the IG report had not been issued. Um, what happened was there was a big dump um, through WikiLeaks. And it's absolutely as the IG report describes it. They saw that, that prompted their memory of the conversation. And then they began the process of contacting us overseas and getting that information to us. My recollection is, and the reason I mentioned that conversation um, about Trump's speech in the Russia are, Russia, are you listening? When we finally in the counterintelligence division got that lead from the friendly foreign government, it was at the same time that Trump was making those comments, which were really concerning because they dovetailed exactly with Trump asking for Russia's assistance, Trump asking for um, the, the, the Russians to hack in and find those emails or find her emails, whatever their techniques. And that came in at the same time. So there was a, you know, a little error. I know some people are you know, scrubbing timelines for little details and, and uh, scoping headlines around them, but that was a, you know, an honest mistake based on a lack of a specific recollection that then after I'd submitted my book to pre-pub review, all this information came out afterwards. So hopefully that clears it up. Adam Pettis writes, my question is as follows, considering the events of the past several years and how they pertain to institutional independence and existing whistleblower protections, what additional legal protections and restrictions, if any, would you consider necessary to mitigate the potential chilling effect of inappropriate executive branch influence over future investigations? It's a really tough question. I mean, obviously an issue that is going to be before us that we absolutely have to address because things, and as you know, as noted, these normative behaviors that have guided presidential authority have been broken down in a way that we haven't seen in recent history. I think that certainly we need to look at uh, ways to insulate and isolate 
the professional bureaucracy, and I say that with a capital B in a good way, from political patronage. Um, you know, we have any number of things like the Hatch Act, which have been just robustly uh, ignored, if not outright flaunted violations of them by this administration. So there are things that are in place that could be strengthened to make sure that we are maintaining an independent professional civil service. Um, and I think that's probably the, the first place that I'd start. But beyond, I mean, those are policy questions and I don't, you know, I have an opinion as a, you know, as a student of government, as an American citizen. I don't know that those are, you know, those certainly aren't FBI questions, but I do think when you look at the FBI, one of the traditions that has served the FBI very well is the idea of a tenure term for its director. And the director is the only political appointee in the FBI. And that provides and preserves a certain amount of independence that is very, very important for what the FBI does. Of course, like everything else, Trump trampled that. He fired uh, Director Comey for, for baldly what he admitted, you know, partisan motives. He did it to get the weight of the Russian investigation off his back. Um, but the, I, I would start looking at the existing laws that exist to protect this um, objective professionalism uh, and to prevent and roll back any sort of encroachment on, a, you know, a return to a patronage system uh, within our federal government. Amanda Rifkin writes, can Mr. Strzok talk at all about the Russians recalling Mikhail Kalugin from the Russian embassy in Washington in the summer of 2016, which is in the Steele dossier, but follow-up press reports confirm it? And if there is any relation to Alek Kalugin, yeah, I can't comment on that at all. I mean, clearly there was a lot of reporting, but this falls squarely in that area that, you know, I'm either going to regurgitate what was in the media. And if I do anything else, I'm going to fall into a path where I'm either confirming or denying stuff that is not, not appropriate for me to do. So sorry about that. Alina Greco writes, if the FBI and the U.S. couldn't stop Russia from doing this or seemingly prevent in the future, why would any other smaller country not just give in to Putin? In other words, isn't this a massive victory in Cold War 2.0? And from this point of view, shouldn't the FBI slash U.S., when the political winds change, investigate and prosecute? Thank you for your service. Those are, those are two very big questions uh, rolled into one. So look, the first one is absolutely. I think when you look at what uh, the U.S. has done under Trump and kind of pulling back to a more isolationist stance, and not only that, but any refusal to uh, push back on Russian actions. And there was a recent uh, U.K. media reporting about how Prime Minister May had sought Trump's help in standing by the U.K. when they were trying to push back on Russia, having just attempted to assassinate a lawful British resident, a Russian, uh, former Russian on British soil and trying to stand up to send a message. And Trump saying, well, I, you know, we don't want to take the lead on this. That has ramifications which are very deep and very profound. It causes everybody around the world who looked at the US to leadership towards protecting Western democratic ideals to question whether or not the US is actually there. And so if you're balancing alliances, you know, we're, we're the idea of, you know, throwing a allies weight behind the United States to lead, again, not, not a military power block, but to lead a set of ideas, of democratic ideas. If you're the UK or France or Germany or any emerging republic in the Baltics or anywhere else around the world, if you no longer can count on the United States to stand for those democratic ideals, you're much less likely to do any number of things when it comes to Russian aggression. And so, you know, I don't want to get on a political science sort of international theory discussion sidetrack, but they're profound, profound 
ramifications, not just now, but for a long time um, that are going to need a lot of work. Uh, with regard to what the FBI should do, I mean, look, I am fully of the belief that what Russia did and uh, is still doing is one of the greatest, from their perspective, intelligence um, successes in the history of our nation. We owe it to us and we don't understand what happened. We have not gotten to the bottom and fully explored the ways that they did that. From a counterintelligence perspective, it's absolutely essential that we take the time to go back and look and understand what happened, understand what the gaps were that allowed that to happen and make sure we're positioned to not have it happen again. So I absolutely think whoever the next administration is, you know, it may need to wait four years and four months instead of four or five months, but we owe it to ourselves and our national security to go back and understand what happened. It's absolutely essential. It would be, it would be like Pearl Harbor happening and just not, not taking any look at, at how that, you know, massive sneak attack occurred. Adam Klein asks, I was curious what you believe are the best ways to safeguard American civil rights and prevent inappropriate profiling amidst an increasing counterintelligence focus on China. Uh, and I want to combine that with uh, Matt Gilbert's question, uh, which reads, how do you see China leveraging President Trump's compromise? Or do you see that at all? Is there an argument to say that in balancing the risks, this compromise is a lesser risk than maybe an administration that would allow or even attract more overtly negative power balance moves from China? This both excellent questions. So let me take the last. Well, actually, let me remind me the remind me the first because I want to hit that first. While I, so the first, the, I, I guess the 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 second one is how does China interact with the with a potential mm -hmm. got compromise? That, yep, got that one, and that's, I, I started and the, mentally and the, diving. And the and the first one is. In the course of responding to China's yeah, got it. Civil liberties uh, like, and how to how do you how, how do you protect that. people's civil liberties yeah, in that context? No, and and so look, I think the that's they were both great questions, and I went both ways in my head on them. With regard to civil liberties and the protections of them, the last four or three and a half years have clearly demonstrated that we need to write our rules with the worst case scenario and the worst case actors in place. It is not sufficient to have a regime of regulation and privacy expectations and rules, assuming good faith and good intent. I think you need, it's become clear that we need to be doing things to make sure that there is robust oversight. You know, I look and I know Ben, you've been the, the personal subject of some of the intelligence activities of new entities within the Department of Homeland Security, which cry out for a much more robust regulatory regime and looking at how the government is interacting with things that should be protected speech. Um, so that debate has always been there. I mean, we as a nation go through it time and again. We debated it in the aftermath of the Vietnam War and Watergate with the church and pike committees. We went through a lot of discussion and debate post 9-11 about whether we needed to shift more towards security. So this is an ongoing sort of pendulum that is a very healthy part of the American process. And we are at one of those pendulum edges right now. Uh, looking at some of the things uh, that the government is doing, you know, particularly with regards to some of the civil activity in the U.S. that I think is a opportune time to sit there and assess what that right balance is. We need to do it thoughtfully. We need people to be able to sit down with different perspectives across the table from each other and have a very reasoned debate about it. You know, can Congress do that right now? I, I don't know. They have to. They need to um, with the president. Um, and so, the answer is it, it, we, we must have those discussions now more than ever. Um, to the second question about China, I mean, I think long-term China is 
a significant counterintelligence threat to the United States. I think China has, you know, existed as a as a nation, as a, a power for millennia and are very comfortable exercising that power through means of persuasion, whether that's, you know, monetary or otherwise. And it is absolutely my expectation, my experience that they're very good at doing that within the United States. So I don't think, you know, when I look early on, there was a lot of, um, keep this in the, in the open sort of unclassified arena. There was a lot of media reporting that was talking about some um, activity by elements of uh, selling Trump real estate and people claiming to be connected to real estate dealings through whether it was investment opportunities that would gain the ability to uh, immigrate or otherwise have favorable uh, status to come into the United States. There are opportunities in that environment for intelligence services to take advantage of. Um, so I would absolutely expect that the Chinese are aware of those. They're very talented at doing it. And I, I know I know they were very active and remain active in uh, as a counterintelligence threat within the United States. Absolutely, that plays into the first question that the FBI never wants. Nobody ever wants to be targeting someone simply because they're a Chinese student or researcher, whoever the case may be, any more than we do on based on any other protected class. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm very comfortable when we do that. Are there occasions where that mistakes happen? Yes, but in my experience, when I saw us investigating an academic link to China or somebody who was, you know, not a full-blown intelligence officer stationed at the uh, embassy, it was based on legitimate, reasonable reasons for doing that investigation, not just targeting because they're other. Victoria Murphy writes, if these counterintelligence investigations have not been done, do you think it is because they fell through the cracks or because some authority Bar Ray, perhaps Trump himself disallowed it. Both. I mean, again, this is speculation, so you have to take everything here um, with a little bit of my not knowing and um, guessing what it was. And I'm also going to limit myself because it's not really fair to speculate. I think the expectation when we set it up from the leadership of the Bureau, which at the time was uh, Acting Director McCabe and his leadership um, with the National Security Division was that I and the FBI people in Mueller's team would do it. Uh, when I was removed, there was a lot going on. I mean, there were the IG investigation was in full uh, out out investigative mode. Trump was on the war path. Um, you know, ultimately, acting director McCabe was fired when Director Ray came in. Director Ray didn't have a background on what was going on. A lot of people who were in the bureau's executive management assumed that you know everything was being handled by the special counsel's office. So there was this um, under belief that you know the other was doing it, and you know which kind of progressed with time. I think it is absolutely the case now. I mean, who on earth is going to, when, when I hear the attorney general saying that this was spying on a presidential campaign and based on a very slender read and absolutely unjustified, that's nonsense. I would ask any objective American, whoever you are, whatever your political persuasion, take out the name Trump and take out the name Russia and put in some random candidate and random hostile foreign power and ask yourself if there's any circumstance where you would not want the FBI investigating that. And I don't care who you are, whatever end of the spectrum, the answer is absolutely you want the FBI to look into that. I can't help but think that absolutely the statements coming out of the attorney general in particular do have a chilling effect and impact on this. It's certainly not the willingness of FBI employees who are 
brave and smart and independent and want to do the right thing every single day. But when you have that leadership climate in place, there's no way, even if you want to do something, that it's not going to have an impact on your work. Sarah Cope asks, as a current SFS senior focusing on behavioral science and its influence on conflict, how can we protect our democracy at this juncture? As Trump spearheads a radicalization process through his attacks on speech and democracy, it feels like fighting a hydra for every head cut off more seem to grow. Look, I think keep faith. I mean, I, you know, I grew up overseas mostly. I lived through three uh, coups and of, of authoritarians on three different continents. Uh, and the one thing that I always looked to and saw in America and still see in America is an underlying basis of a belief in what we stand for. And I don't care again, I could sit down with the most partisan member who probably hates my guts in Congress and we could find a way to list a hundred things that we love about the country. And that is consistent, whether you're talking to somebody on a big city in the East Coast to a little tiny town in the middle of the Rust Belt, that common ground is what we have to look at. And that common ground is what constantly gives me hope that we are going to find a way to re-identify and come together over those things that we share, because those ultimately are the core things of what makes America, America. And that is how we're going to find a way to move past this era of division and the other and find a way to uh, start rebuilding some of the damage that's been done. A professional question from Sandra Essex. In thinking about Georgetown and a master's degree preparing for a career in the FBI or CIA, how would you describe the advantages in preparation for those careers? So a great question. I think it depends on what you want to do because those are very different career paths. They have a lot of similarities um, from the perspective of, you know, the guy who was the deputy in the human resources division. I think there are a lot of, in the national security environment at the FBI, I think there are very tangible things, whether that is an area studies focus, whether that is, um, you know, doing a, a history type uh, of focus, which gives you a deep understanding of certain cultures, whether that's China, whether it's Russia, if you're looking at those areas of emerging threats or emerging threat is a bad word to use in the context of an educational environment. But if you look at those, uh, the players in the international environment that are going to pose a competitive relationship to the United States, having an understanding of those countries' history and their cultures are, will serve you well uh, anywhere in the government. Certainly foreign language ability is extraordinarily important. Certainly um, cyber skills, knowing how to code, being conversant with IT systems, understanding what the entire cyber threat environment is are high demand uh, areas. So um, those are the sorts of things that I would encourage you to pursue. And you know, pick something you love because ultimately, you know, your work, they call it work for a reason. So find something you like and then dive in and, and find something that's going to allow you to do that. I'm going to give the last question to uh, Margaret Mainzer and then reserve the rest of the time, however little, uh, to wrap up. Margaret asks, how have you managed to keep so elevated and professional while having the president dump on you so aggressively and constantly? What <laughs> self-care did you benefit from? Sometimes I feel like that, you know, what's the analogy of the duck where he seems to be like, you know, kind of placidly moving across the pond while underneath the, the feeder going nuts. Um, it's been tough. I mean, you know, I have had the 
extraordinary support of my family and I don't deserve their support. Uh, they've been strong and just a source of tremendous strength that has been wonderful and remarkable. And our friends um, and certainly just kind of the goodness of colleagues and people who we know who understand, you know, A, that all this is nonsense and B, that, uh, you know, know me and us for who we are have been extraordinarily beneficial. But, you know, all the things and, you know, some of this is getting older too, just, you know, kind of exercising more and eating less and sleeping more and meditating and all the things that go into it. You know, at the end of the day, it comes to, you know, an understanding that, you know, what I would tell you is you can weather things you never thought you might be able to do. And the strength that you have inside is greater than, you know. Uh, and so if I can show anything, it would be that, um, you know, that there, and there are plenty of people who, you know, my, what I'm suffering is, is, is nothing compared to, uh, what many around America do on a day in day out basis. So, you know, hopefully, you know, it, it, it serves as a, uh, source of, of strength and, and a positive message that way. The book is Compromised, Counterintelligence, and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. The author is Pete Strzok, uh, known on the cover as Peter. Pete, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, it's good to have you in the public domain. Good to be here, Ben. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution Thanks this episode to the folks at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown for hosting this event and providing us with the audio. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast, so tweet us, share us on Facebook, upvote us on Reddit, pin us on Pinterest, and share us on other social media. And of course, Leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. You can get Lawfare merch at thelawfarestore.com. Our audio engineer this episode is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The Lawfare podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is, as ever, performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>